For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look into the community discussion about expanding sexual education in the Tucson Unified School District. How the University of Arizona Poetry Center is highlighting the connection between poetry and food. Here, a brother and sister take one small step after they decided to give up talking politics. And Krista Scheel looks back at a movie about gun violence, 1968's Targets. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Tucson Unified School District is considering a change to the curriculum that's been at least four years in the making, and it revolves around updating sex education. The school board is set to vote in just a few days on whether to make these changes, and a reporter here at AZPM named Duncan Moon has been following this story. Thank you for joining me, Duncan. Good to be here. So, Duncan, tell me about the major changes that this new curriculum will bring and perhaps why they are controversial. This moves away from the old abstinence-only sex education that Abstinence is the, really the only way that you can prevent um, sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancies. This keeps that and must keep that by law, but it also brings in some instruction that is being called medically approved. Uh, it's based on research, um, including the use of condoms. Um, some folks think that may be suggestive and, or may could push kids towards sex who ordinarily wouldn't go that way. Um, since August 1st, this has been out there on the web. All of the information is there. There have been two nights where um, people came and spoke pro or con, uh, their reasons for supporting it, their reasons for being against it. The Tucson Unified School District is supporting having an open conversation about this among parents and teachers. Yes, absolutely. Now, some of that is required by law to have the public comment. Anybody who has really wanted to take a good look at this and dig down on it and talk directly to the board has been able to do that. Let's hear a couple of comments right now from some concerned parents. Hello, my name is Jorge Apodaca. All my three kids graduated from TUSD. I am here as a concerned citizen for my Latino Hispanic community. And in our community, we protect greatly our values, which are that we are pro-life, pro-marriage, and pro-family. So as a Latino Hispanic community member, we believe that this comprehensive curriculum, it is very confusing and immoral. We have learned to take care of our own kids, and we don't need a, such a curriculum to direct our children. So this curriculum is offensive to my culture. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Reeves. I am the parent of TUSD students and the product of a TUSD education. I read the fourth grade and the high school curriculum really fully, and I hope to get to the other Portions, but what I did not see in that curriculum and any of that um, information was sexually explicit material. I didn't see an emphasis on gender preference or sexual identity. What I did see was inclusive and supportive information for our children. It seemed to emphasize the strengths of our students and help them make good decisions. 
those comments right there show the range of reactions that parents are having. Uh, what about the school board itself? They sit, they listen. When they speak, it's to say this point is not accurate. There was some confusion there at the first um, public comment that this was simply an opt-out programming, meaning that you had to take action to get out of the program. Um, they stepped in and said very clearly, this is an opt-in program, which means you can't get into the program unless you are assertive about doing it and fill out the paperwork to get in the program. So anyone who does not want to be in the program has that choice right up front. And what ages are we talking about? Well, it'll start in fourth grade, it'll go through eighth grade, and then there'll be a one single class that'll also take place in high school. One of the expert voices that spoke at, at a public meeting is Andrew Cronin, who's a pediatrician. Let, let's hear what he had to say. I'm a pediatrician at El Rio Community Health Center. Um, I'm in a location where approximately 70% of my patients are students within the TUSD district. I wanted to address, first of all, the question of whether there is controversy in the medical community about age-appropriate, medically accurate sex education. And in fact, there is not. The American Academy of Pediatrics represents 67,000 pediatricians. The American Academy of Family Practitioners represents 134,000 family doctors. The American Academy of OBGYNs represents 58,000 OBGYNs. That is a total of 259,000 doctors and organizations that believe in this type of sex ed. Perhaps the most important thing or the most unique thing about this policy is that if it were passed, it would become one of the most forward-leaning um, on the LGBTQ issue. It really is inclusive with its language um, in bringing everyone to the table and saying no one is left out. Uh, for example, uh, gender-specific language uh, would be removed, and that's been controversial. Um, some people are, are very concerned about that. If this is passed, that, that inclusive nature will, will be uh, kind of groundbreaking. And to further exemplify the diversity of reaction that people are having to these plans, there was a woman who spoke who said it's nothing to do with LBGTQ uh, accessibility that is on her mind, but rather other issues. I was sexualized at the age of three, and it about destroyed my life. This is not what we need, dear friends. Those of us who are against this are not against homosexuals. They are born from God just like we are. But I can tell you, this does not help. The parents should be doing this. We do not have to be told by the government how to handle our bodies. One claim that some detractors have made against this program is that it may be in some way connected to Planned Parenthood. Uh, Duncan, have you seen any sign of that? I haven't seen anything that ties this to Planned Parenthood in any way. Again, it is research-based, evidence-based, so they have gone out and looked for the best medical knowledge and tried to incorporate that into this. This is not a planned parenthood um, program. Well, we've talked about parents and teachers and experts, but have students been included in this conversation? They asked students to step into the process. What don't you understand? What are you confused about? How would you like to see this go? What would be useful to you as a student? What types of information would you like to see included? Superintendent Trujillo said, and he talked to students who said, you know what? We know all this stuff. We just need good information to help us make good decisions about it. This vote has been delayed a couple of times, but what kind of timetable are we looking at now? We're looking at September 10th, the board meeting that will be that night. Um, and they'll decide up or down whether this goes through. People can keep up with all of your reporting on this subject at news.azpm.org. Thank you, Duncan Moon. My pleasure.
When you remember a poem, what part of your brain do you think you use? And how is it different from when you think about food? The University of Arizona Poetry Center is exploring these sensations and bringing them together in a current exhibition called Come to the Table. It offers poetry that revolves around food, from muffins to leeks, and it invites the public to try eating a poem. So my name is Rena Rye. I'm one of the K-12 education coordinators here at the Poetry Center, um, and I'm also a food writer, so I spend a lot of time writing and thinking about food outside of my day job here. Well, I would love to talk to you about some of the conclusions that you might have reached thinking about food in that way. But tell us about this exhibit. What was the um, idea here in terms of bringing written word about food to life? This exhibit was curated by our senior library assistant, Leela Denver. Um, and so she invited me to come and be a part of curating this exhibit. A lot of her thinking about it was the idea that creating a recipe or creating a dish feels in a lot of ways like making a poem. Um, and that there are these crossovers where, you know, it can be improvisational. It can be really thought out. You know, there are different frames and styles to do it within. What kind of food has been a part of this exhibit? So one really exciting thing that Leela did was she decided to hold a reception, an opening reception for the exhibit, which we do at different times. But for this opening reception, she wanted everyone to eat at least one poem. So we had a number of poems that we sort of divided up between us and cooked those poems. And then we also have a poem in our exhibit by Josefina Cardenas, who's a community member here in Tucson, an amazing community organizer. Her poem is about blue corn tortillas, and she actually made the tortillas for the exhibit as well. Do you think that when you eat the food resulting from a recipe that is in a poem, that it gives you a different appreciation and perhaps like a sense memory of that poem? I think it does, yeah. And I think about how when I was teaching this summer, I was teaching actually with Josefina and with some kids in the neighborhood that they that uh, she lives in, in Barrio Kroger Lane. We made guacamole according to Pat Mora's Ode to Guacamole. So we read through the poem and then we smushed the avocados and we added the tomatoes and we added the salt and the onions. And so that was a really cool way to experience a poem and I felt like the kids were way more engaged than if we had just read it. There's some art here on the wall. You're inviting people to come in and add post-its with messages about food on it. And the first thing I, I see when I look at it, it says, Tucson tastes like at the top. And someone wrote, hot, hot, hot chilies. <laughs> I like that one. And then here's one that's a little bit more pessimistic, uh, dirt and spikes. Yeah. What's one of these messages from the community that, that resonates with you? I really like this one, um, which was uh, written by the son of a friend who came to the opening reception, and it has a picture of a dancing taco on it, and it says a big taco with many flavors of different kinds. So people can come and, and add these words to the board and, and enjoy some of the poetry, and I'd like to ask you to read a poem for us now. When you talked about cooking a poem, did you have a personal experience with that this time? Yeah, so I was actually doing a bunch of research, um, and I was trying to find a poem that I could bake. And I came across this poem by Amy Nizuku Matatil, and the poem is called Baked Goods. So I'd be happy to read this poem if you'd like. Thank you very much, yeah. Rana. I would love that. <laughs> Baked Goods. Flour on the floor makes my sandals slip, and I tumble into your arms. Too hot to bake this morning, but blueberries begged me to fold them into moist muffins. Sticks of rhubarb plotted a whole pie. The windows are blown open, and a thick fruit tang sneaks through the wire screen and into the home of the scowly lady who lives next door. 
Yesterday, a man in the city was rescued from his apartment, which was filled with a thousand rats. Something about being angry because his pet python refused to eat. He let the bloom of fur rise, rise over the little gnarly blue rug, over the coffee table, the kitchen countertops, and pip through each cabinet, snip at the stumpy paper bags of sugar, the cylinders of salt. Our kitchen is a riot of pots, wooden spoons, melted butter. So be it, maybe all this baking will quiet the angry voices next door, if only for a brief whiff. I want our summers to always be like this. A kitchen wrecked with love, a table overflowing with baked goods, warming the already warm air. After all the pots are stacked, the goodies cooled, and all the counters wiped clean, let us never be rescued from this mess. Thanks to Ren Arai for showing me around. The poems and community art for Come to the Table will be on display in the UA Poetry Center's library through November 23rd. Since it began, StoryCorps has preserved tens of thousands of conversations in the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. The initiative One Small Step was created this year in response to the polarization and partisanship that dominates the national conversation on politics and social issues. It is an attempt to find common ground and raise awareness of people's similarities rather than their differences. NPR 89.1 is one of six radio stations across the country that were chosen to participate and invite people here to have their words recorded for future generations. Next, we'll hear from brother and sister David Ravishier and Chris Medvesic. Chris actually sent me an email saying, this sounds like fun. I looked at it and I thought, yeah, it does sound like fun. I was kind of surprised that you sent that to me and sort of hinted that you might like to do it because typically you don't like to discuss politics with me. Uh, And I was very glad to receive it. So I'm really glad that you did. I was surprised I didn't think you'd follow through on it, and I was really glad that you did. You and I have, we like to debate, but in recent years I have not enjoyed our political debates because I get very passionate and very upset, and I'm not comfortable with the way I am in those conversations because I feel so strongly about what we're talking about, and I feel like we're just playing a tennis match instead of really trying to talk about issues in a values kind of way. So I told you, um, I don't want to talk about politics anymore. And I felt really great about that because I felt like then we started talking about other things and we started laughing together more. And uh, the reason that I sent you that email is because you had recently said to me, I sure would like to have a political conversation sometime if you're ready. And I kind of mentally reviewed the headlines of the day and said, nope, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> and, uh, and then I saw this and I thought, well, this could be a way for us to have a, a structured conversation where we're not directly talking about politics, but we're talking about the values behind it. So I'm really glad that you applied. Although I like debating with you, I, was, uh, I thought, well, this is perfect. It's not a debate. Yeah. Okay, you go. Okay, so we talked about how we grew up in the same family. 
and yet we really have very different takes on things. And you commented we're on opposite sides of the fence. And I'm just wondering how you saw the formation of your opinion. Was it in opposition to my opinion, or how, how did your how did your perspectives form? Uh, I think because I was listening to you and Dad debate the issues of the day, uh, and I was really young when this started and sort of grew up with it. As long as you were living at home, I was listening to it. I don't know. I've been thinking about that. It could be because, you know, it was my father taking on my sister and I sided with my father. And I think that that may have been the start. Another thing I was thinking about is mom is a very traditional values person. And then when I started paying attention for myself, I started to see things from a conservative perspective. Now, as, I, as I've as i aged, uh, I tend to move a little more to the middle. And there are things that I never supported that are typically conservative values. And uh, But that's... What are you talking about? Well, I think when the religious right is compared to radical groups, I don't agree with that. I don't think they're radical groups, but... Uh, at the same time, I think that their view of the world is somewhat narrow and unaccepting in certain cases like uh, gay marriage, for example. Let them marry for crying out loud. I mean, love is love, but that sort of thing. One of the things that influenced me a lot in my values was um, was spirituality. And as a child, it was Christianity. And as a teen in the 70s, my friend Karen and I got very involved in the sort of the Christian coffee house movement. And, and I really took that to heart. And I really became uh, radicalized by the message of Jesus and felt very much like, wow, what we're called to do is not easy. And you need to kind of have a certain amount of courage to be able to be a Christian. So I, I felt like that really formed one of my values. I And you mentioned traditional values from mom, particularly. She has a very traditional point of view. But yet, politically, she's kind of progressive. And I think that one of the things she modeled for me was these aren't just things that we say. These are things that we do. I think my earliest memories of mom's political stance was when she was bemoaning the fact that Nixon was guilty because she believed up until the end that he wasn't. I think she may have been the only person in America who, <laughs> who didn't think mm-hmm. that Nixon was guilty. I think everybody is basically a contradiction on some level, that they identify one way, but there's always elements of the other way involved in how they think and feel. It's certainly the case with me. For example, I am totally anti-death penalty, I don't see how you justify death with death. I've never had reason to to really want to see somebody else dead. I understand that people feel that way. I think that overall, though, that that's just an emotional reaction to a terrible situation. And were it not for that heightened state of emotion, maybe they'd feel differently. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that about your thoughts on the death penalty. I I think you know, hearing that, it makes me think about how. Voting for a politician these days is kind of like picking an insurance package. You just have to take everything that comes in there. 
even though you'd rather sort of put it together a la carte and take the things that you like and, and, and construct it the way you want to, you kind of have to say, well, I'm voting conservative, therefore I take on all of these conservative values as well, even though I, I disagree with some of them, or vice versa, I'm voting in a, in a Democratic That's ticket. interesting, because I don't. I say I'm voting one particular way uh, because this person most closely reflects my my feelings about what direction the country should go in and how to handle this or that. But there are things that I won't identify with as part of what you say, the package that comes with a politician. And I, I reject those things, but I accept that there's nothing I can do about it. You know, you take the bitter with the better. I feel like in our family, our broader family, I get pegged as the uh, idealist, the naive, everybody should just hold hands and sing kumbaya idealist. Do you see me that way? No, I always pegged you as a lunatic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I'm an idealist. We just have different ideals. Thanks to Chris Medvesic and David Ravishir for participating in One Small Step, a program designed by StoryCorps. They had many more things to say to each other on a range of subjects. At the end, when David asked if Chris would be willing to continue their political conversations, she said, we'll see. You can find more One Small Step recordings at azpm.org. It's a sad statement that when mass shootings occur in our nation, they're rarely granted more than a few days in the public consciousness before they're filed away to add to the growing list of gun violence statistics. In 1966, when Charles Whitman, known as the Texas Tower Shooter, took 16 lives and wounded dozens, it had a massive impact on the American psyche. Two years later, the incident served as the inspiration for the first feature film from a promising new director. The result was a film like no other, as Chris DeShiel will explain. It was the first movie directed by Peter Bogdanovich. From 1968, Targets. Bogdanovich was a 28-year-old film critic for Esquire magazine who had made a name for himself writing profiles of important Hollywood directors like John Ford and Orson Welles. But he wanted to direct, and like many other aspiring filmmakers at that time, learned the craft working on low-budget films for the highly successful producer and director Roger Corman. After working as assistant director on a couple movies, he asked Corman to let him do a film of his own. Corman said yes, but with three conditions. The budget had to come in at less than $125,000. He needed to give a role to Boris Karloff, who owed Corman two days shooting, and he had to incorporate 18 minutes of Karloff's latest Corman picture, The Terror, into the film. The result was Targets, in which Bogdanovich ingeniously fulfilled all three conditions. The movie opens with the ending of The Terror, with the credits for Targets superimposed a rare example of a film starting with the ending of another film. It's a humorously confusing way to begin a picture. In a huge castle near the sea, during a raging thunderstorm, Karloff and Jack Nicholson face off in a final showdown, and the words THE END eventually appear on the screen about three minutes into the sequence. The lights go up and we're in a screening room. Karloff, playing an actor very much like himself, named Byron Orlock, looks tired and depressed while the film's producer, seated nearby, gushes about the next film he's got lined up for him. 
Orlock then shocks the room by wearily announcing that he's done. He's retiring from movies. This is especially bad news for another person in the room, a young writer, Sammy, author of the next picture screenplay, played by Bogdanovich himself. No, I'm serious. This is a very important film. This is the kind of property I'm going to be proud to put my name on. Are you writing this down, Ed? It's a good script, Sam. Don't you think so, Byron? I'm not making any more films, Marshal. I'm retiring. Since when? What is this, a gag, Sam? Later, Sammy shows up at Orlock's hotel room in L.A., trying to persuade him not to retire, or at least to stick around for this next film, in which the actor can get to play a complex character for once. The obvious affection between Karloff and Bogdanovich makes their scenes together particularly charming. The dialogue highlights one of the most interesting aspects of Targets, the benign, practically childlike quality of the classic horror genre, which seeks to scare an audience, while at the same time, with a wink, or at least a nod, reassuring them that fear is a valid and enjoyable part of life. But interspersed with these scenes is a plot line completely different and seemingly unconnected to them. A young man named Bobby, a handsome all-American type played by Tim O'Kelly, buys a bunch of firearms at a gun store before going home to where he and his pretty young wife live with his parents somewhere in the L.A. suburbs. There's something off about Bobby. He's a Vietnam veteran, and he seems a little too rigidly cheerful to be normal. As it turns out, inside of him there's a terrifying violent urge just waiting to explode. Hey! What are you doing? You know better than that! That's just how accidents happen. Never point a gun at anyone. Sorry. I wasn't thinking. The character of Bobby is clearly inspired by the case of Charles Whitman, the young ex-Marine who had shot and killed 14 people from a tower on the University of Texas campus a couple years before, a case that had horrified the nation. Now, of course, 50 years later, mass shootings have become an all-too-prevalent symptom of American malaise. That makes targets even more haunting and disturbing than it was at the time. The story of Bobby eventually dovetails with the story of Orlock, and it's a brilliant stroke of technique by Bogdanovich, both thematically and in the stunning final sequence, visually. I wonder if the young director fully realized how incisive targets really was. The contrast between Karloff's old-world grace, which had invested the horror genre with a certain dignity for almost four decades, and the distinctly modern horror of the clean-cut and apparently motiveless mass murderer is deeply and painfully ironic. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.